You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia. Uh, I am your host, Breach Burke, and this week we are still on our series about the Mahavidyas. We're going to talk about the goddess Dumavati. Now, Dumavati is a, is a Mahavidya that I haven't had a whole lot of experience with in the past, but as I was researching her for this particular episode, I was really surprised at how much, um, how kind of how relevant she is right now and um, how much um, she resonates with uh, certain current issues that have been going on. And also, I, I think about, um, you know, what she has, seems to have to do with women's role and status in life, too, um, <clears throat> which is quite interesting. Her auspiciousness or inauspiciousness seems to be predicated a lot on um, that social status as a wife, um, or in this case, as a widow. Um, so what I want to do is uh, I'm going to start by talking about her and uh, about her origin myths. And also I, I'm going to go over kind of a list of some of the main aspects of her, um, at, you know, of her whole, um, <clears throat> you know, her, all of her qualities and her, you know, what, what her, um, why am I not finding the right word? It, you know, her, basically her, um, you know, her qualities as a deity, we'll just stick to that. Um, and what, um, you know, and, and which ones are important, which ones are, are kind of interesting and important to focus on. Because she's quite, again, again, as I say, every episode, these goddesses are very complex. So, um, what a, you know, there's, they're not unilaterally one thing or another. Uh, now, Dumavati uh, means the smoky one, okay? Um, <clears throat> and it's uh, at the Vasanasi temple, which is one of the few Dumavati temples that exists uh, in India. Uh, one of the um, priests there described her, her name, her name is meaning sad smoke, um, because there's a, and there's a couple of different origin stories associated with her that will um, make sense. Now, let me um, just describe her here. I have just a quick, uh, brief introduction. Um, okay, she is, um, okay, she is a group of, one of the Mahavidyas, a group of ten tantric goddesses. Dumavadi represents the fearsome aspect of Devi, the Hindu divine mother. She is often portrayed as an old, ugly widow and is associated with things considered inauspicious and unattractive in Hinduism, such as the crow, well, that's interesting, and, and the Chaturmas period, which has to do when Vishnu goes into his sleep, and therefore the more inauspicious um, deities kind of are able to kind of run amok. Um, the goddess is often depicted on a horseless chariot or riding a crow, usually in a cremation ground. Her prayers are said to pacify Ketu. Now, Ketu was the south node of the moon in Vedic astrology. And Ketu, um, you know, tends to be what they call a malefic in the chart. It's, um, you know, I, again, like anything, Ketu doesn't have to be malefic in its influence. Um, I remember going through the Ketu phase of my, my own Vedic chart and that actually ended up being one of the best times of my life when I was able to kind of be by myself, but I was able to, um, you know, get organized, figure out who I was, what I wanted, you know, where I was going, um, <clears throat> without a lot of the, um, I had been, I was just divorced at the beginning of my K2 period. So it was just, um, it was a good time for me to, uh, reassess who I was. So K2 doesn't, ha you know, K2 and K2's influence on your life doesn't have to be negative. 
but um, but Dumavati, if, if you know any negative K two influence, uh, Dumavati is supposed to um, help with that. Okay, so just to continue, Dumavati is said to manifest herself at time of cosmic dissolution. Um, Pralaya, and is the void that exists before creation and dissolution. Mm, that's interesting. While Dumavati is generally associated with only inauspicious qualities, her thousand name hymn relates her positive aspects as well as her negative ones. She is often called tender-hearted and a bestower of boons. Dumavati is described as a great teacher, one who reveals ultimate knowledge of the universe, which is beyond illusory divisions, like auspicious and inauspicious. Her ugly form teaches the devotee to look beyond the superficial, to look inwards, and to seek the inner truth of life. <clears throat> okay. She is also a giver of siddhis, or supernatural powers, a rescuer from troubles, a granter of all desires and rewards, including ultimate knowledge and moksha. Uh, her worship is prescribed for those who wish to defeat their foes. Um, her worship is considered ideal for unpaired members of society, meaning single people, bachelors, widows, world renouncers, and tantrikas. In her Varanasi temple, however, she transcends her inauspicious and acquires the status of a local protective deity. There, even married couples worship her. Because one of the things that's said is that one should not worship Dumavati if they look to be in a relationship or to be married, because she creates the desire to be alone. Um, though she has few dedicated temples, um, her worship by tantric ritual continues in private secluded places like cremation grounds and forests. Okay, so... <clears throat> The other thing I want to read to you is the description of what she looks like. It's a um, the sort of traditional symbolic image of Dumavati. And she is seen as an old hag with a winnowing basket um, on a horseless chariot. Um, and uh, they note that she has an, doesn't have an, hardly has an existence outside the Mahavidya group. In fact, I think in her origins it was said that there's no men she seems to have come into Hindu um, mythology somewhere between the 10th and 15th century CE and isn't really, you know, developed that much as a deity or character until the 19th century. So she's, she's quite late in terms of, you know, her being developed kind of as an entity of her own. Um, as a god goddess of poverty, frustration, and despair, um, she, Dumavati is associated with Niriti, the goddess of disease and misery, and Elakshmi, the goddess of misfortune and poverty. And there's another goddess, uh, Jesta, who is also added to that list. So I'm going to talk about that from David Kinsley uh, in a few minutes. But um, first I want to um, just talk about sort of the major aspects that I want to talk about in this episode. Uh, first... Um, she's similar to other inauspicious goddesses, but she's not the same. And I just mentioned those particular three um, who are associated with, uh, you know, she's, you'll see that in terms of their imagery and her imagery, they're quite similar, but they're not really uh, the same, okay? Uh, they're, you know, they're, she, her definite separating characteristic is that she is a widow, and the others are not, the others are portrayed as married women, even though they may be portrayed with similar uh, characteristics, for example, having the crow or having a winnowing basket or carrying a broom. Now that's interesting. You have an old hag carrying a broom. Hmm. So there's there's that association. Her association with the crow is interesting. Um, we'll talk about that. Her association with smoke, okay, meaning smoky offerings, and um, you know, that supposedly when in her temple, that's what she likes. If you're burning incense or camphor or whatever, she likes something that's really like you know choking choking smoke. She likes that. Um, her association with widowhood, both young and old. Um, most aspects show her as an old widow, 
but there are also some representations of her as a young widow, and a young widow is considered to be more dangerous than an old widow. Window widows are considered to be troublemakers in um, Hindu, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, Hindu social law, I guess you could say. Um, and they're not, they're not considered to be, they don't, they don't have a social status. Uh, frequently they wear white. Now, um, that's kind of interesting because, you know, we, we associate, we, in the West here, we think of black as the color of death, but in the, um, East, the color of death is white. Okay. And they, the, you know, women, so generally, I mean, unless you're, unless you're part of, um, Mata Amrita Nanda Mai's uh, ashram where they wear white, you know, to symbolize the traditional Western idea, maybe of purity or, or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, that, you know, this was more, you know, the widows are supposed to wear white. Okay. Um, so there's an association with the, ne you know, the negative aspects of widowhood, but also the independent aspects. Um, she's associated with poverty and need. And I see, even though this is not Matangi's aspect, I feel like there are some, um, because it has to do with outsiders and, and those outside the social system, I, I see kind of a, uh, an affinity at least or an affiliation with Matangi. And sometimes I have actually seen images where she has been pictured with Matangi. Like, you know, there's been images of the two of them side by side. Again, not that the two of them are necessarily connected in that way, but, um, but just kind of an interesting um, correlation. And also the idea, as we just said, is Dumavati as the void between death and new life. That is other interest, another interesting point. So we're going to talk about all those things. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about, though, is her origin myths. Okay, so here we go. Some of this I've taken, from, again, some from Wikipedia, some I've taken from other um, Vedic sources online, um, and others I've taken from David Kinsley, as, as always. So, um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm pulling, you know, pulling this from a variety of places. Um, okay, so the first legend of Dumavati's origin, uh, from the Shakti Samagama Tantra, uh, she's described that, now we, this is the story of Sati committing suicide. I've mentioned this story a number of times. You know, she wants to go to her father's sacrifice. Shiva doesn't want her to go. That's supposedly the origins of the Mahavidyas, too, where they all, you know, she expands herself in the ten directions to show her scary power. And uh, Shiva eventually, you know, lets her go. But then when uh, she goes, she's ignored, and her father um, insults her husband, then she gets furiously angry and she burns herself up. Okay. Uh, in this case, they say she actually jumps in the fire of his sacrifice or his yanya. And uh, Dumavati rises with a blackened face from the sad smoke of Sati's burning body. Okay, that's where the sad smoke comes in. So Dumavati is that manifestation of <clears throat> the sort of Shakti dissolved or destroyed. Okay, she is all that is left of Sati and is her outraged and insulted avatar. The Pranatoshini Tantra explains the widowhood of Dumavati. Okay, so this is the other myth, okay? Um, Sati asks Shiva to give her food. When Shiva declines, the goddess eats him to satisfy her extreme hunger. Okay, now we've got her as a devourer, all right? Um, the, those of you who are interested in Jungian psychology should go, ooh, you know, that this should um, immediately, uh, you know, <clears throat> spark some uh, light bulbs. Um, when Shiva requests her to disgorge him, throw him back up, she obliges. Shiva then rejects her and curses her to assume the form of a widow. Um, another oral legend says that Dumavati was created by the warrior goddess Durga in the battle against demons Shumba and Nishumba, both those names meaning uh, too much and too little. Dumavati's literal name, she who abides in smoke, comes from her ability to defeat demons by creating stinging smoke. Okay, so we have three different origin myths here. 
Um, they're all related to the smokiness. They're all related to her widowhood. Uh, now, the Pranatoshini Tantra says, stresses Dumavati's destructive aspect and hunger, which is satisfied only when she consumes Shiva, who himself contains or creates the universe. It brings out her inauspicious status as a widow and her self-assertion on her husband. Now, there, there, you know, that's, there's a social thing there, and some of this has to do with Hindu dharmic laws and, and things like that. Um, but it's, it's something we see elsewhere as well, this idea of the woman who um, is considered to be dangerous because she um, dominates her husband. But as we've seen, this is true in all of Tantrika. I mean, you know, the woman on top, you know, she is the one who is asserting herself, and whether you see that as a positive or negative really depends on your point of view. Um, so, <clears throat> okay, so we have this idea of her, so she, she's, all, she's definitely affiliated with Shakti or Sati, um, and um, she has this devouring thing. Uh, they said she, re- she represents the tamas guna, which is associated with lust and ignorance, and she eats tamasic foods, uh, including liquor and meat. Okay, so she is... Um, associated with, uh, with those things, um, in, um, in Hindu thinking. So, okay. Um, so, okay. So let's, um, so, so those are the stories surrounding her. Now let's, let's kind of try to, uh, break that down a little bit. I mean, these are, these are largely my reflections on it, but they're not, they're not without their basis. Um, first she's sort of, um, she's portrayed as sort of an ugly old hag. Okay. Um, allegedly because she devours Shiva. Now, um, <clears throat> I'm thinking of also, you know, a related theme. Now, when, when we th- in the West, what do we think of when we think of a scary old dangerous hag? We, you know, and in this case, she's carrying a winnowing basket, okay, but, um, you know, which, which actually would have to do with uh, the idea of discrimination. And I don't mean, like, negative discrimination. I mean sorting between right action and non-right action, okay, um, so that she, you know, sorting between, you know, having the ability to sort between the two. Okay. Um, so she, so there's sort there's a certain wisdom to her, um, with her age. Um, and, and, you know, and the goddesses she is closest, uh, related to, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, those, those particular goddesses are not, um, <clears throat> they, they, they're all kind of, you know, they're all very similarly themed, um, as kind of, they, they carry, like I said, some of them carry brooms. And, and so I, I can't help but to think of the sort of Western model of the, of the witch, who's an old hag. Obviously, she's a wise woman, but she's also, um, you know, she has this devouring aspect. You think about the, the witch in folklore who devours children, for instance. Or, um, you know, if I think about the role of cannibalism in Greek myth, the idea of um, taking what's created and uh, and swallowing it up and that fits right in with the archetype of the terrible mother if you've read Neumann's work the great mother which is a rather dense and monstrous work honestly but it's um but you know the, the point there of, about the the archetype of the terrible mother is that the terrible mother devours it's associated with for example the vagina dentata you know the vagina with teeth um so when you have all these horrific things about, you know, the vagina that devours, you know, or you have this idea of, um, you know, this it, it, part of the reason, okay, when we have this sort of object relations mythology that says, okay, we move from being a child who was in the mother's womb and connected to the mother to developing into an independent being, generally the way that that cycle, ideally, at least in terms of our um, 
civilization and our the life cycle as we've we've kind of idealized it um that once one becomes an individual then people go out they they learn their lessons they have their own authentic life experiences and then they bring that back to share with the community so you reconnect to the community but you connect with it you know bringing your own unique gifts now this has more to do with the idea the fear of being completely swallowed up as you are trying to become an individual or you are trying to be authentic the idea that you are going to be swallowed by that darkness there's also a connection there to sort of the night journey of the like the night journey of the sun in Egypt for instance the barge that goes underground or that um you know you know could be swallowed by apep you know and you know and there's you know the um you know, or the darkness, or, or Jonah in the belly of the whale, you know, and uh, the, the other various motifs you see in, in films and in literature and folklore about, you know, the hero who has, to cut, you know, who has to cut himself out of the monster, kind of. So, you know, in this case, it's, you know, it's because she represents that kind of monstrous, like the Tiamat, you know, she's, she's almost like, she's not, she's not represented in, in any kind of serpentine way, but there's the idea of the great devourer. Okay, so this is... Um, this is interesting that Dumavati is sort of that uh, devouring aspect. And the fact that she's old, I think, has a lot to do with that, too, because we think about old age as de what devours our life, you know, that the mortality is the one thing that, um, you know, that, well, it is what religion and myth seems to be obsessed with, is the fact that death occurs. And, um, and again, the attitude towards death will depend a lot on the culture. A lot of people spend time trying to stave off death. I mean, not that we want to die, but, you know, before our time, certainly— there's a stage at life where people probably do want to die um, or, you know, where they've, they've done everything they're going to do and, and that's it. But that not everybody has an acceptance of that. Um, there's, there's definitely extremes on that. So, okay, so we have this uh, Dumavati as the devourer. Um, now, uh, her animal is the crow, which, of course, those of you who are into the Dark Mothers will immediately think, aha, think of somebody, a goddess like the Morrigan. Um now, the Morrigan is not considered to be an old hag, although she can take that form. There is There are mythologies of her taking the form of an old woman, particularly with Kukulan, um, or Kukulan, however you want to say that. Um, she is, uh, you know, her, so the, you know, her, you know, so, and the crow, you have to remember, is the, the carrion bird. It, you know, it picks the flesh of the dead. Okay. So again, her the idea of her dealing with dissolution, with the breaking down, the decay of things, uh, would connect her with the crow. Um, and in some versions, they said she's driving a horseless chariot, mainly because as a woman, she has nowhere to go. Okay, she's you know she's kind of where she is. Um, but other times, you see her chariot being drawn by crows or vultures or some other kind of carrion bird. There's a uh, there's a connection there um, with the crow. Uh, the crow is also in a lot of um, particularly Native American and um, you know American mythologies in general. The crow tends to be associated with a trickster figure, and certainly um, one of the troublesome aspects of the widow is that they are they 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 can have a tricksterish aspect to them. So all very interesting uh, associations between these these myths. Um, now, it's um, the idea of her as a goddess of dissolution and the void before new creation, that as well. There's this silence, but that, you know, that silence between death and life. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting experience to reflect on. If you think about um, people who have had catastrophic loss, or even if it's not catastrophic in the sense of like, I don't know, losing your home and all your possessions, but even like 
having a significant death or um, in your in your life, uh, like your partner or maybe your parents or something, you know, that's very significant to you. Or perhaps, you know, just losing a way of life, losing your job or having to change your career, having to, you know, all these kind of crises that we end up coming to where we know something is definitively over, but we don't know what's new yet. We don't know how to move forward. Um, or we may know just even those of us, like those of us who are in our midlife crises, we may be at a point where we know what we've been doing no longer works and is no longer appropriate, but nonetheless, what's replaced it isn't there yet. So you're kind of stuck in between. So there's a, again, a liminality to that. And we are not comfortable with liminality. You know, we, we wouldn't mind death if we just kind of knew definitively what was next. We wouldn't mind it as much. Let's put it that way. That doesn't mean we don't feel sorrow about what we've lost. But we might feel, I think we would tend to feel more comfortable if we have a direction and a path forward. When you know something's done and you don't have a direction and a path forward, that's a scary place to be. That's the void. That's Dumavati. And I think that's another reason she's relevant because I feel like uh, a lot of people I know individually, and it might just be my age because there's all, all of us are having midlife crises all over the place, but, um, but certainly even the world, like I'm looking at what's happening with, um, you know, the way our world is changing and has to change. The old way is clearly not working anymore in a lot of ways. Uh, environmentally, economically, politically. I mean, there's upheavals, there's changes. And then it becomes, there's the winnowing basket. You know, don't throw out the the good old stuff when you get rid of the bad old stuff, you know? Um, although inevitably, people may lose something that, that may have served one person, but maybe doesn't serve another. So, um, so that's why I say Dumavati is kind of an important figure for our, you know, for what we're going through right now, because she represents that, that place of being in the void. And generally what any kind of, I don't know, spiritual teacher or any kinds of, um, you know, meditation, whatever that's going to teach you is that when you're in the void, you just have to be there. You can't be fighting to not be there to either recling to the past and go back to the way it was, which is what a lot of people are trying to do right now, you know, make America great again, etc. And, and other other things that people, other, other versions of that from around the world, even to some degree, at least some people who have voted for Brexit were just kind of like, we want to go back to England the way it was when she was great before. You hear, you hear some of that rhetoric as well. And um, the bottom line is you never really go back. Um, and what you're going back to probably never existed. It's the kind of golden age myth, you know, like, there was a time when things were great. Well, you know, maybe they probably on reflection, they're not as great as you thought they were. Or maybe they were a personally great time for you and maybe not for other people. Um, but in any case, the past is done. And then it becomes a case of, and you don't want to get too obsessed with the future. So it's really, Dumavati is about forcing you to live moment to moment in the present, which is what meditation exhorts you to do. Be here and now. Be aware of where you are now because really that's the only moment that exists. Time is a construct that we use to measure things. Basically measuring time between birth and death. You know, between the beginning of something and the end of something. We use time. Um, <clears throat> this puts you in the space sort of that's, that's outside of time. And we don't like being in that space. We like structure. Okay? So, um, so Dumavati really has an important lesson about living in the present and being here. Um, but also accepting that time marches on and that things change. Okay? And that what, or, and in some cases too, given her old age, as it's been said, 
um, her her apparent, uh, you know, uh, the apparent negativity of her old, and they 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 actually say she has an old ugly form, like you know, you know, sagging breasts, and you know she's you know wrinkled, and and actually they say she has dark skin, which uh, you know I'm okay. Uh, there's more of that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, probably, uh, well, there's a lot of social implications of that association. Let's just put it that way. Um, but it, but it's, it, it's kind of that, that's that spot of being in the void. You know, there's a new beginning coming. It's just not there yet. So there's also an element of being patient and being in the moment, uh, that can be taught to us by Dumavati. Um, now here's just another little, uh, clip about, you know, clip about her that I saw. Uh, Dumavati is a manifestation of the antisocial and inauspicious elements in women and is an antithesis to the goddess Lakshmi, who's the goddess of true wealth. Like a Lakshmi, Dumavati rules over the four months of the rainy season when even solar light is obscured by the evil water spirit. It's interesting uh, interpretation of the uh, rainy season there. Um, <clears throat> but as we know, the rain also serves a purpose. This coincides with Chaturmas, a period during the year where the god Vishnu sleeps. Okay, at that time, darkness rules and the soul loses its usual luster. This period is considered inauspicious, and as such, no auspicious ceremonies like marriage should take place. Okay, now it's interesting. That's four months. That's a quarter of the year. Actually, it's more than a quarter of the year, isn't it? It's a third of the year. And it's, um, so, you know, there's a third of the year that they think of as being in darkness. Now, we can think of our, our mythologies like the one of Persephone having to do with winter and spring. You know, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the, um, <clears throat> comparative Western myth, at least in Greek myth, might be the myth of Persephone in the sense that when Persephone goes to the underworld to be with her husband, and of course they talk about that as being half the year, um, then that is when, you know, things die and things don't grow, and, you know, and in a way, Dumavati may be very similar. And they're saying that, you know, when Alakshmi, um, you know, or Dumavati, you know, any of these other... Um, uh, inauspicious deities, when they run amok, it says they run amok with goblins and ghosts. And so you kind of, again, get this kind of feeling that one gets in the autumn when things are dying and then you move to a holiday like Samhain or Halloween and uh, and then everything, die, you know, and then um, then you have the, the death of winter. Now that's, that's certainly true in the West. Um, the, um, the way the seasons run in India is different. So... Um, it, it's going to be slightly different in the way that it um, is interpreted there. But nonetheless, it's the same idea. The idea of, um, you know, uh, another mythology of, you know, the sun being obscured in its own way. In this case, um, fire obscured by water, in a way. Um, and if you think of fire as being sort of the energy of life, you know, water kind of can have a dampening effect on that or can put fire out. So, and can create smoke. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it, it's not, you, you can kind of see where all of that, that sort of comes together. But, um, but Dumavati, so she has this, um, this inauspicious character, but like I said earlier on about my K2 phase, it's like, okay, what's, what are, what, what, did, what is to be done during those periods of time? And what, um, <clears throat> what can they actually teach you that's positive? Um, and again, I'm, I'm doing a lot of recording right now. Um, right now I'm actually out of work because, um, again, this, this whole coronavirus thing, uh, they've decided to make us work from home, uh, which I've been doing, but I'm also, you know, doing some of this, uh, other work in between. 
And so everybody's very scared and they're very upset. And there's a lot of people going absolutely crazy, both like in the stores and online and people screaming at each other to stay home. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. But what needs, what I think needs to be focused on, and I, and I feel almost 100% certain that we will be past coronavirus. Uh, maybe not. I think this is going to be, this uh, particular podcast is probably coming out on my birthday of all days. So, um, it will, you know, we might be just getting past it by then. Um, I, I don't predict it lasting more than another three to four weeks um, at most, maybe to the end of April at most. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but nonetheless, if, if it is something still going on, then, then what's to be taken away from that? Okay, you can't go to work. You can't run to the store. You can't buy a lot of crap. Um, you know, so sit at home. Like, get up. Enjoy the sunrise. Um, I mean, you may still have your work to do. You may have to work from home and do all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, spend some time, you know, in your own yard, like enjoying that, you know, it's spring, you know, um, spend time, take time and take time to self-reflect, you know, see who you are, where you, you know, you are, you know, connect with people in your family. If you live with people, I don't happen to live with anyone, but you know, it, it's, it's that kind of a thing. You know, this is, this is the time to take time out for you and for those who are closest to you. So there's, there can be a, a positive element to that. So this is sort of what I see as, um, associations of uh, of Dumavati. Okay, so let me move on from that. Um, now, the uh, the goddesses she most resembles are Jayastha, Niriti, and Elakshmi. And again, she has the, the similar uh, attributes, um, like they, they, they are old, those goddesses are portrayed as old, but they're portrayed as old married women. And, you know, they often carry, you know, a broom or something, something like that. There's, there's a, um, there is a, uh, an association there. Um, with the three of them. Let me just see if I have a little bit more information on that to tell you, um, rather than just mention these names. I know I have notes here. Um, let's see. I might have to go to, uh, what's his name? Um, to David Kinsley for this, because I think he is the one who discusses that at length. Yeah, let me, let me look at, let me look at David here, what he has. Okay. Um, all right, so let's first talk about uh, uh, Nirti. Uh, Nirti is the is known in the earliest Vedic text, the Rig Veda, as a dangerous and auspicious, inauspicious goddess. Just one hymn mentions her, and its concern is to seek protection from her or to ask that she be driven away. She's equated with death, bad luck, and destruction. The hymn sums up Nirti's nature very well. After four verses asking the gods for renewed life, wealth, food, glorious deeds, youth, and continued long life, the following refrain is invoked. Let Nirti depart to distant places. That is, Nirti is identified with the opposite of the blessing sought. She is, de- she is decay, need, anger, cowardice, decrepitude, and death. Okay? Um, she's said to be dark, dressed in dark clothes, and receive dark husks as her share of the sacrifice, although one passage says she has golden locks. She lives in the south, the direction of the kingdom of the dead, is associated with pain, and is repeatedly given offerings with the specific, specific intention of keeping her away from the sacrificial rituals and affairs of people in general. Okay, and she has continued to be known in tradition, and her nature has not changed. Just, um, yesta, um, is um, also appears very early in the Hindu tradition, uh, and said so they say he says she might have had a widespread cult during some periods. Many of her images have been found during the seventh and eighth centuries. She seems to have been widely known in South India. In physical appearance, she bears similarities to Dumavati. She is described as having large pendulous breasts descending as far as her navel, with a flabby belly, thick thighs, raised nose, hanging lower lip, and is in color as ink. She is black or sometimes red 
holds a lotus in a water pot, sometimes making the sign of protection. Uh, she wears many kinds of ornaments, as well as a tilaka, an ornamental mark on her forehead, which identifies her as a married woman. Her hair is usually braided and piled on top of her head or wound around her head. She has a banner depicting a crow. Sometimes a crow stands next to her. She rides a donkey or is drawn in a chariot by lions and tigers and carries a broom. Um, <clears throat> now, according to the Linga Purana, she was uh, born when gods and demons churn the ocean to obtain the nectar of immortality, the Amrita. She was given in marriage to the sage Dusaha, who soon discovered that his unattractive wife could not bear the sound or sight of any kind of pious activity. When he complained to Vishnu, Vishnu told Dusaha to go with his wife only to places where inauspicious things occur. Hence Diesta's popular epithet, a Lakshmi, she who is inauspicious. Among the places specifically mentioned as appropriate residences for her are homes, where family members quarrel and elders eat food while disregarding the hunger of their children. Eventually, Dusaha abandoned Yesta. She complained to Vishnu she could not sustain herself without a husband, and he dictated she would be stained by offerings from women. Um, okay. It is also significant as a link between Yesta and Dumavati that her name means elder or eldest. Dumavati, as we see, is shown as an old woman. Now, Elakshmi, the third goddess, um, is mentioned as early as the Sri Shukta, a very early hymn in praise of the goddess Sri, which translates to respect. In that hymn, Sri is asked to banish her sister, Elakshmi. Uh, Elakshmi is said to appear in such inauspicious, inauspicious forms as need, poverty, hunger, and thirst. Lakshmi, or Sri, that's another name for her, goddess of true wealth, is her exact opposite, and the two do not dwell in the same place at the same time. Their natures are incompatible and are unable to exist when, the, when one is able, they're not able to exist when the other is present. Elakshmi is described as an old hag riding an ass. She has a broom in her hand, a crow adorns her banner. The crow and the broom are also associated with Dumavati. Okay, now here's an interesting thing about the festival of Diwali, the festival of um, lights that occurs in November. And it always occurs after uh, Navaratri, the festival of Durga, and then following the Kali Pujas, where a lot of these dark mothers are, um, uh, you know, have their, have their worship, uh, in no and usually again in November. And then it's followed by Diwali. Now, here's, here's what Kinsley says about this. This is on page 179 of, um, what was it, uh, Tantric Visions of the Divine Feminine. He says, The contrast between Elakshmi and Lakshmi is dramatically evident in the festival of Diwali and the rituals and practices leading up to it. The ghosts of the dead are said to return for the three days before Diwali, which takes place in the autumn on the night of a new moon. The demon Bali emerges from the underworld to rule for three days, and goblins and malicious spirits are abroad, including Elakshmi. People invoke Lakshmi to drive these spirits away and light lamps to frighten the demons. In general, evil spirits are exorcised, especially a Lakshmi who is believed to have reigned on earth during the past four months. Okay, that's that um, uh, when Vishnu is sleeping. Uh, in addition to the lighted lamps, which a Lakshmi dislikes, people bang pots and pans or play instruments to frighten her off. On another occasion in Bengal, an image of a Lakshmi is made and ceremonially disfigured by cutting off her nose and ears, after which an image of Lakshmi is installed to signify the triumph of good luck over bad luck in the future. Okay. Um, so again, you know, these, these are the goddesses that uh, Dumavati tends to be associated with, but as Kinsley notes, they are, not, um, they are not the same goddess, and it's probably a mistake to say they're the same. Although Dumavati's story could you know, given her aspects, could to some degree maybe have been um, certainly influenced by, uh, by those particular goddesses. But, but to me, it has more to do with how those, um, 
how the particular attributes or things that they're associated with, uh, how, what they have in common, you know, the old age, the carrying a broom or a winnowing basket, uh, the associations with the crow. I think it has more to do with what those particular things <clears throat> tend to be associated with. Um, if the deity is associated with them, they tend to represent those particular qualities. Okay. Now, um, Dumavati does have fierce characteristics. Um, again, referring to Kinsley here. Um, let's just read uh, from this. Uh, okay, so first I'm going to go back. Dumavati is described as ugly more often and more consistently than the other three goddesses. Her breasts are dried and withered, her face is nasty and wrinkled, her teeth are crooked or missing, and her hair is gray and disheveled, and her clothes are dirty and worn. That's the other thing, she wears dirty clothes. Although she, the other goddesses are certainly said not said to be attractive, there's a stronger insistence on Dumavati's unattractive experience in most written descriptions. Dumavati is also described as fierce, frightening, and fond of blood, characteristics not emphasized in descriptions of the other three goddesses. Dumavati, for example, crushes bones in her mouth and the sound is awful. She is said to make the noise of drums and bells, which are frightening and warlike. She wears a garland of skulls, chews on the corpses of the demons Chunda and Munda, where passion, um, or anger and passion, and uh, drinks a mixture of blood and wine. Her eyes are glaring red, stern, and without tenderness. She carries Yama's, with God of Death, buffalo horn in her hand, symbolizing death. She dwells with widows in ruined houses and in wild, uncivilized, dangerous places such as deserts. Okay, And deserts, by the way, are often associated with the western land and thus with death, where the sun sets. Also, unlike the other three goddesses, Dumavati is related to Shiva, albeit indirectly in some cases, and his spouse, uh, Sati. Um... <clears throat> So this is um, so this is another um, you know the sort of ferocious aspect of Dumavati. Although, as we'll see, she she has also been like I said described um, at the at the one temple that is dedicated to her in particular in South India. Uh, she is considered to be um, you know even though she has this ugly appearance and this fierce nature, she can be very tender hearted towards those who um, you know who seek her help. Um. Okay, so what else do I have here in my notes? Okay, now this is another interesting um, thing, especially in Nepal. There's the idea that a widow, you know, because she is a woman without status, without direction, and on her own, is prone to being possessed, okay, by evil spirits. Now, um, in Nepal, this is referred to as boxi. Uh, boxi. I don't know if it's boxi or boxi. Um, but... <clears throat> um, yeah, and this is, again, uh, page 183 here um, from uh, Kinsley. He says, um, The inauspicious, if not dangerous, overtones of Dumavati as a widow might also be suggested by the Nepalese belief in Bokshis, a class of dangerous, inimical spirit beings who possess widows. To become a Bokshi is necessary for a woman to sacrifice her husband or son. Hmm. Widows here are associated with the murders of their husbands and son and with willful evil. They are understood as bringing about their own inauspicious condition by despicable acts or by being vulnerable to possession by evil spirits who will prompt them to undertake such acts. Widows, by definition, are suspect as dangerous beings who are likely to cause trouble and therefore should be avoided. That's probably where the idea of sati came up, too, the idea of the woman, uh, when her husband dies, throwing herself on her funeral pyre, because otherwise, you know, she's directionless, she's pointless, and, you know, prone to... Um, you know, being possessed by spirits and whatever. As the divine widow, the symbolic widow par excellence, Dumavati is to be feared. Now that to me is the, um, yeah, that gets a lot into the um, social and Vedic view. And they did say it as actually in, in Hindu law, you know, um, about, you know, having to do with widows and their status. And, um, you know, it's, that's one of the things, to me that is, um, 
that is a social thing. That is a, um, it's a way that, you know, it's social more than having to do with what I would consider to be the higher functions of, of Hindu religion, the deeper ones. Um, this has more to do with the community and what is beneficial to the community. If, uh, just like with the, um, now Dumavati is associated with cannibalism and cannibalism, uh, as kind of a, you know, uh, a metaphorical theme, I guess you could say in mythology tends to have to do with retraction rather than expansion. Oftentimes in Greek myth, it's the father who devours the son. Like there's some kind of a cannibalistic, um, thing that goes on. And that's the idea of not wanting to share power or not wanting to expand power. So, um, so in this case, what we're talking about is, you know, reducing the, um, <clears throat> you know, it, go, it kind of goes back to that, that devourer element, that the widow is one who um, takes, you know, resources, but, you know, you know, can't bear children anymore, doesn't have a husband anymore. Maybe they can bear children anymore. Actually, again, the, the young widow is considered to be uh, a danger as well because she is still considered to be inauspicious, but, but she's also an independent woman. Ooh, God forbid, right? So, um, so the independence factor uh, is something to be thought about there, about, you know, having to do with the, the social value system. Um, to me, you know, less with the deity itself, uh, you, you kind of have to look beyond that to get to, um, you know, what what the deity really is or what, you know, obviously, yeah, you don't want to do rituals or, or form alliances that are going to bring influences into your life that you don't want. Nonetheless, um, you need to acknowledge that those forces are there and you need to show respect for them. Um, and it's not uncommon, certainly, in paganisms ancient paganisms for the community to, you know, do these kinds of things to say, you know, you know, hi, you know, um, I know you're, I know you're there, but, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I, 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 you know, I respect you and your power, but, but please stay away from me. Um, you know, because, you know, because people don't want these things in their life. We don't want poverty. We won't, we don't want homelessness. We don't want to be directionless. You know, we, we don't, we don't want things. We want a life full of abundance and, and meaning. And, you know, we want an expansive life, not a contracting one. Dumavati represents a contraction. She represents dissolution. Not, not, not the outpouring of Shakti, but rather the retraction of it. Okay. Um, now, uh, when I see this idea of sad smoke, I, I, I made this comment to myself in my notes on this. Um, Dumavati, I have, a, I have a work that I'm working on called The Morrigan Diaries, and I sort of have three different views of the Morrigan and of course, not maybe not coincidentally, the Morrigan has three different aspects. But these are all aspects that have kind of come, uh, I don't know, some of them like are just in dreams or in inspirations. They're not fantasies. They're just these kind of inspired view of um, the way I see the Morrigan. Okay. And, you know, it's, and it's interesting because when I'm reading the characteristics of Dumavati as she is seen in her more um, I don't want to necessarily say auspicious form, but, you know, one more sympathetic form, um, tends to be at least one very solid view that I have of the Morrigan. I have, I have views of the Morrigan that are decidedly powerful, decidedly sexual, but then I have another view, um, of her, um, that she is, you know, and again, Morrigan is associated with crows as someone who's sort of either plagued, um, by betrayal or distrust or misunderstanding, bad luck, loss, because the Morrigan Diaries is about the Morrigan, um, you know, being here in the world at this time. And um, she is most definitely, you know, in spite of the fact that the, the Morrigan, as I see her, is actually a very beautiful woman, uh, she tends to be, you know, 
uh, treated with a certain amount of um, suspicion and disrespect. And she is alone. And this particular aspect that I see of her is alone, prefers to be alone, and um, but is also very tender towards people who appeal to her. And, you know, even if they don't fully understand her, at least that they are, um, they obviously have, you know, um, positive intentions towards her she you know you know and again she doesn't necessarily do it through an outpouring but she might do it through generosity and so forth at least in the in the stories that I have so I thought I thought that was interesting I'm like Dumavati definitely resembles resembles oh my god (laughs) I talk about putting two words together resembles uh this particular character that I have and uh, with the difference that I don't see the Morrigan as being old and ugly in this particular case I mean again there are mythologies of the Morrigan where she does appear as a hag but um, not particularly in this one, although um, she certainly can appear as that when, when she wants to. So, okay, I just that was just a reflection I had that I wanted to uh, sort of mention there, uh, especially for those who might be interested in my other work outside the podcasts um, that, are, that is coming along at this time. Okay, so um, a few other reflections that I have here um, just to um, talk a little bit more about Dumavati. Um, okay, the idea of the woman with nowhere to go. Uh, widows, again, have no social status in India, according to their law, or at least according to the uh, Vedic law. And she tends to, that's why she's associated with poverty and need, because, you know, since she doesn't have a husband to take care of her, um, you know, she doesn't have anything. She's kind of on her own. And that's why her chariot usually is portrayed as having nothing to draw it. There is nowhere for her to go. And that's really quite sad. Um, it kind of makes her, and that's why I think I, in my mind I sort of started allying her a little bit with Matangi in the sense that they both have to do with those who are now cast out of society. You know, you're no longer useful to us. And that's, that's kind of a really, um, pardon me saying it this way, it's a real shitty attitude to have towards, towards your old people. Um, and it, it's, you know, because there's obviously wisdom, but, but see, the wisdom of the, the older woman an older man might be a sage and like go off into a forest. And technically speaking, uh, what they've said is that a woman could do that too. That could be just like a man at that age of life. She could take, you know, vows of renunciation and, and leave the world and, and try to, um, you know, have some kind of spiritual attainment. But women who still choose to be in the world, it's like, well, you know, what good are you? You're not producing children. You're not, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily that that person isn't a mother or doesn't have um, a, uh, you know, a family already. But, um, you know, it's, but, but then, then, then the rest of the family members would have to come together to, uh, take care of her. So she becomes in a sense, um, a, a burden, although again, strictly speaking, one doesn't have to be just because their husband's dead. That doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing the same things that they did before. So, uh, quite, quite a, quite an interesting commentary. And I'm not really sure that anybody that I know personally, at least, um, from India, necessarily has that attitude towards old people. I don't think that they're um, disrespectful or, you know, um, shun person just because they've lost their spouse. I think they're, they've, they've progressed, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, if that, if that was the attitude, it seems to me they've, you know, progressed in a large margin to pass that attitude, that that's not, thankfully, not from the typical social, um, you know, way of, of dealing with things. But, um, but it's interesting because the idea is that now that the, what I find interesting about it is the idea that now that the woman is free because she doesn't have her, you know, her family obligations, she doesn't have her husband, um, although she might have her family obligations. Right. But but she doesn't have a husband anymore. So she is no longer bound to his will. 
okay, that a woman by her, that, you know, again, it's that danger of a woman by herself. There's a book that came out, I want to say it's by um, W. Scott Poole, uh, who, Poole, Poole being P-O-O-L-E. Um, it's a book, what is it? Um, I think it's called Monsters in America. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating book that I read once about modern cinema and film. And one of the things that it talks about is um, the, the, the spate of horror movies that came out about, you know, um, sort of um, revolving around women or women, pregnant women or, you know, women's sexuality right at the time when birth control started to become available in the late 60s. Uh, like Rosemary's Baby, for instance, um, or even um, a film like The Exorcist. Um, there, there was an idea that the woman um, who's coming, a woman who's coming into her own, her sexual own, is somehow dangerous. Um, we have in Rosemary's Baby, you have um, you know the idea of her Rosemary as giving birth to Satan's child. You know what I mean? Um, you have in The Exorcist, Reagan is somebody who's right at, at Monarch. She's right on the, you know, she, she's just entering puberty. And her mother's an independent woman. Her mother's a single mother with a career. And, um, and thus Reagan starts playing around with things like a Ouija board because, you know, witchcraft, etc. And what happens to her? She becomes possessed by a devil, okay? Uh, or by a demon, by an ancient Babylonian uh, deity or something, which is which is quite quite fascinating and, and funny at the same time. I know it's supposed to be based on a true story, which, by the way, is actually about a boy. Uh, it's supposedly the, the supposed true version of The Exorcist had to do with a fourteen-year-old boy, not a girl. The fact that they chose a girl at that age and that they made her mother the way she was tells you it's a commentary because there was a lot of commentary at the time, and you should read his book or at least his chapter on that. It's fascinating, Monsters in America by W. Scott Poole. Um, where he talks about how, um, yeah, like, and the church put a lot of things out about how, you know, uh, what this was going to do, like with these women now who could control when they were going to have children. And, uh, you know, this was just, you know, this was just not right because now women were going to behave, uh, you know, in such a fashion where they felt that they had sexual freedom. Ooh, my goodness, you know? And we may, we may sort of laugh at this today, but a lot of those standards still stick, the way that we feel about um, virginity before marriage, for example, uh, the way that we feel about um, women who don't get married or aren't partnered. I, I've, been, I've been living, I was married once. I've been living alone for quite some time. And it's hilarious when I go places, you know, if a man goes out someplace by himself, people will always just, you know, they, nobody says anything about it. I go someplace by myself, they're like, oh, you mean it's just you? And my usual response is, yeah, I'm kind of old for a babysitter. Because, you know, I, I just... People tend to have that attitude. A woman by herself, there's something not right about it. You know, you have to have somebody with you um, because somehow there's something about you. And it's not, I'm not, nobody who's doing this is doing it consciously. This is just the social script. You know, women, women have to kind of be, you know, kept under, you know, the, the idea of, um, under the script of a man. And, and it's, um, and, you know, and Dumavati kind of really like brings that home, you know, the, the aspects and the, and the social attitude there. Um, and it's, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And so I think we need to really look at Dumavati, um, in terms of her, her more, you know, what she represents in a positive way, the way she shows us that, yeah, you know what, it's okay to be in a spot where you don't have a goal and an aim and a direction. And yes, things do pass out of your life. And you know what, it's good to just sit with that and be where you are. It's okay to have sorrow. It's okay to have anger. Um, 
And these kind of losses are inevitable. I mean, she's kind of like resting in that inevitability and staying in the present, which is what, you know, again, any kind of Eastern system of meditation, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist or any other kind, will extort you to stay in the center and in the present. And that's the value of Dumavati. Um, now, I just want to mention one, um, you know, a couple other things. Uh, the other things that were mentioned about her um, independence may indicate that, again, you know, on, on a positive note, that because the person has nothing to lose, which, and again, makes it kind of like people who worship Santa Muerte or people who um, worship these other... Uh, you know, sort of darker goddess. It's like there's nothing to lose because she has to do with poverty. It's like, okay, well, you know, it's not like you, you're protecting your, your life savings or something. There's nothing there. So here you are in the void with nothing to lose. Okay, and, and that, that can create, um, worship of Dumavati can create an indifference to worldly goals and aspirations, which is why she's also said to lead to moksha or liberation from, uh, from birth and rebirth. Because eventually, um, you know, one, you know, in the same way that one might want to become a, a sage in the forest and, and or a hermit, uh, she she has a lot to do with those uh, with those kinds of aspects, which can lead to um, spiritual awakenings um, or, uh, you know, an indifference to the things that tend to entrap us and get us into trouble. So, you know, there, there's other ways to look at it. Um, I had one more thing about... Um, have it at the end here about um okay so kingsley just at the end of his chapter on dumavati talks about three different paintings of 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 her that are that are out of character with the others one in which she's wearing a white sari which that to me is not out of character when you're talking about death riding on a crow um and then there's uh, there's another one that's a very erotic image of her um, and, you know, so in other words, there's, there's, there's some variations on the traditional Dumavati theme. And he's saying, well, what does this mean? He says, it's possible there's another tradition, which I have not been able to find, in which Dumavati is not a widow and is not described as ugly and clothed in soiled, worn garments. Oh, and that's the other thing. She's wearing jewelry in a lot of these. And normally her, part of her aspect is that she's unadorned. She doesn't have, she doesn't wear any jewelry. Um... Barring this, a plausible interpretation of the paintings might relate to the reputation of widows as dangerous to men. Attractive young widows, who in most upper castes are prevented from remarrying, are considered particularly threatening. Because her husband has died, the widow is a woman who has lost her social identity, at least from the point of view of the Hindu law books. From the male perspective, she's a social misfit, and if she's attractive and still in her childbearing years, she represents temptation. She might also be understood to have strong, unsatisfied sexual longings, particularly in light of the claim made many male author texts that females are sexually insatiable. Yeah, probably not. But anyway, um, maybe maybe some women are. I don't want to speak for all women. Um, but the idea that that's, you know, that that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a general characteristic of women, no. Uh, in short, the widow is understood to be sexually tempting to males. A saying popular in Varanasi captures this, widows, bulls, stairs, and sannyasis. If you can save yourself from these, for you awaits the liberation of Kashi. Widows here are put on par with such notorious dangers at Varanasi as wandering bulls, dilapidated stairs, um, at the bathing ghats, and an unscrupulous, ugh, unscrupulous holy men. You know, your, your uh, failed gurus, the people who um, tell you that they're holy people, but they're actually just um, charlatans. Okay. Um, so yeah, so there is an aspect of her that is related to Rati, um, the, the goddess of sexual intercourse and is said to enjoy those things. So again, you know, um, I think there's, you know, there's a sexual component 
to all of the female goddesses. Um, all of these, um, you know, they're, they're because again, because they are connected to a certain energy. There is a certain energy in non-action and in sitting still and in um, and, and sitting in the silence. There's a lot of power to be gained there. So that's not necessarily um, that unusual, even though it may not be part of her general aspects and attributions that people associate with her. So okay, so I'm I'm going to stop there on Dumavati. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts in the comments if you, um, like I said, anywhere on social media, um, at Metapsychosis. Um, eventually there's going to be a place on Chthonia for all of this, but, um, you know, again, still in progress. Uh, and also, um, on YouTube. Um, and I want to say, uh, thanks again to, uh, my subscribers, both on YouTube, um, on iTunes, whatever, uh, podcast subscriptions, uh, those of you who check it out on Metapsychosis. Um, you know, and, you know, please feel, please, you know, stay up to date, uh, join my social media feeds, um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, I tend to only update them. I, my, I might be doing more in the future, but right now I, I, unless I see something very specific to what I'm doing, I try to stay on brand and say, okay, we're going to just talk about, um, what, you know, what, what, you know, what's appropriate for this particular episode or podcast. So, um, I, I, I try not to inundate people with too much stuff on those site on those, um, pages but I may do a little bit more and um and again if you're interested in supporting any of my work uh the Morgan Diaries Maeve um you know I have, I have an academic workout um other pod you know being able to do more with these podcasts that I can do right now because um I have I have some I have some Patreon subscribers and thank you very much to those of you who have um been dedicated and continue to subscribe um but uh you know it's still <clears throat> you know I, I, I'm not moving to a big, expensive podcast studio at this point. So, um, so anyway, if anybody would want to support my work, uh, that would be much appreciated. And um, I wish you all well until the next episode.